Hey, everybody. God is good all the time. And he's being good to us today. And um, isn't it nice to have better weather? (laughs) I'm thrilled. I've been waiting for this for a long time. And I think we finally made it, finally turned the corner here. And looking forward to uh, sunshine and flowers and all kinds of good things. Hope we can have that right away. All right. Um, let's get started. Last week, uh, we started talking about balance. And, uh, you know, balance is not just uh, important in daily life. But the point I wanted to make with us uh, last week was that it's important to us spiritually also. And I think there is such a thing as, as spiritual balance, and we begin to talk about that. There's two kinds of balance. I mean, I want you to think about it in two different ways. There's balance like what you need when your wheel is rolling down the road at 70 miles an hour. You want your wheel to be uh, balanced so everything runs smooth. And then there's balance as in two things that are weighed against each other, like a scale. One on one side and one on the other. And by putting those two things on the scale, you can get some idea about which is heavier than the other and, or if they're uh, weighing about equal. Last week, we, we talked about that first kind of balance from the spiritual standpoint. And I asked you to think about your life as like a wheel rolling down the road. And we talked about the things that had to be on that wheel, things you just can't get away from, things that have to be there. And then we talked about how maybe those things need to be somehow kept in some kind of a balance so that when the wheel is rolling, you don't get a lot of vibration. As you know, as you roll down the road of life, there's enough potholes anyway, and it just doesn't make any sense at all to create a bunch of extra vibration and turmoil and turbulence and all that kind of thing with that wheel being out of balance. So you try to keep your wheel in balance there. But uh, like I said, certain things had to be on the wheel and they have to be in some kind of a balance or the ride gets kind of rough and you create a lot of unnecessary vibration. This week I want to talk about spiritual balance from the standpoint of two things being weighed against each other. And the goal when you're thinking about it that way is to keep those two things in balance. Not to let one totally outweigh or dominate the other. And I don't know, over the years, I've seen this over and over and over again in the scriptures. It's come home to me. That sometimes it's very hard to draw the line of exactly where you ought to be and what you ought to be thinking about something. And what you ought to be doing. Because it seems like on one hand, you're getting this teaching over here from one story in the Bible. Another place, you're getting a a teaching from another another angle, whatever, and somehow or the other, those two things fit together, but actually finding the line right there in the middle where those two things meet is almost impossible. I mean, you, you, you know, how am I going to do this? And I don't think that God intends for us in those cases necessarily to find the line. I think what he intends for us to do is to keep our eye on both ends of the scale at the same time. And if you do, if you can keep that part of it in in mind and that part of it in mind as you go about your life, you're going to be about right, okay? There's a balance that kind of comes from that. And God intends for that tension to exist, that uh, we're constantly adjusting because we 
we've looked at this a little bit too much and we forgot about this. Or we looked at this a little bit too much and we forgot about this one. And, and the idea is to keep those things roughly in balance as you go along in life. Well, there's uh, about five examples of this that I, that I thought about. And I've just noticed this as, as I've studied the Bible, that there are things that God intends for us just to keep in balance. I'm going to give you five examples to think about here this morning. And this is something you can chew on this week and something to think about. The first one I want to give you is this, is that there's a balance between going into and coming out of the world that God intends for us to keep. So let's start with the Great Commission. This is Mark's version of the Great Commission. It's Mark 16, 15 and 16. This is where Jesus says to, to his disciples and to all Christians everywhere on the planet, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that disbelieves shall be condemned. But there it is. Jesus says in the Great Commission, go into all the world. So here's the command to go into the world. Now, I want you to lay right alongside of that another teaching found over in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to have to read a little bit there, but you're going to see what, what I'm talking about here. So we go to 2 Corinthians 6. Let's start at verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out. Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So in the Great Commission, you have Jesus saying, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Then you have the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, saying at a later time, come out from the world. Come out from the midst and be separate, says the Lord. And you, you just ask, what do you want me to do, Lord? Which is it? Am I supposed to go in or am I supposed to come out? What is going on here? You want us to go into the world or come out of the world? And actually, he wants both. It's not an either-or situation. It's a both-and situation. God wants us to go into the world because that's our mission field. But he wants us to be careful that we don't let the world pull us back into our old way of living uh, that we experienced, that we lived before we became Christians. It takes a lot of wisdom, a lot of thought, and a lot of prayer to keep those two things in balance. But I think the Lord wants us to go into the world and also to be separate from the world at the same time. And that's a tricky little thing sometimes. So which side of the scale gets the most attention? And that kind of depends on who you are. Because I've just noticed this. If you are an older Christian or been a Christian for a while, for the most part, we get focused on coming out and staying separate and kind of pulling back from the world. We've, we tend to pull back from the world. Uh, we don't pay so much attention to the lost. We kind of insulate ourselves from the world to the extent that we forget about reaching out. And we spend most of our time trying to get, I spend most of my time trying to get mature Christians to start thinking about people who are lost and to be reaching out for those people. So if you're an older Christian, there's a good chance that the, the verse that you're kind of focused on is maybe that one right there. And you've kind of pulled back into your fortress. If you're a new Christian, it's much more likely that you're going to be focused on going into the world. 
Because when someone becomes a Christian, they immediately start thinking of other people who need to be saved. And they've got all these friends that, you know, they, they, they've just come away from maybe a lifestyle that was pretty worldly. And they think about all these friends. They're, they're all caught up in this. And they understand what, you know, I, I understand what the problem is. And I, I know what to say to these people to bring them back. And so if you're a new Christian, it's much more likely that you're focused on going into the world. But I've noticed this, that sometimes those new Christians put themselves in situations that are spiritually dangerous. They go into situations that they've only recently escaped from. And when they do this, they are giving Satan what I call home court advantage or home field advantage. Now, that's like a, a, a thing in sports, you know. Um, home field, home court advantage is very real in sports. There are teams that are pretty much mediocre. I mean, they're not, they're not great teams, but they have developed a tradition of winning at home. And even mediocre teams are hard to beat on their home field because they have home field advantage. There's something about playing in your own field, in your own stadium, on your own court that gives you a, a, a leg up on anybody who comes into your house, into your place, and wants to play you. It's called home court advantage. I think sometimes uh, new Christians give, uh, they don't realize what they're doing. As they go back to find their friends, the people that they're lost, they're going back to situations where Satan has what I'll call the home court advantage. And so we, we, we don't realize that. We go into those situations to share the good news, and we end up getting sucked back into the old life. Well, both of these things are, are, are ideas or things you have to keep in mind. I mean, both ends of, of the scale here. We're going into the world because that's our mission field, but we've got to be careful as we're going that we don't end up getting sucked back into the things that are there. And so to make this work, you just kind of keep, <laughs> you keep looking back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and you keep that thing in balance. That's the first example I would give you. All right, here's the second example. There's, there's supposed to be a balance between what I'll call spiritual and temporal concern on our part. There's two passages I want you to look at here. The first one is found in Luke chapter 10. This is one that we look at fairly often. Uh, it comes up in Bible class, and we preach about it every now and then. It's Luke 10. It's a story about Jesus. It says, Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up, she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has let me do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from here, her. And here in this little story, I think you see the two ends of, of a spectrum, a balance that somehow is to be kept. There's this, this concern about logistics and details and, and, and preparations and all that kind of, you know, the things that relate to this life right here. And then there's this spiritual concern that has to do with Jesus and being fed by him and, and having fellowship with him and all of that. And that's something very different from all these preparations. I mean, they meet somewhere, but those are the two ends of the spectrum here. So, like I say, there's the logistics and the myriad of things that have to happen 
if you're going to serve a meal and have a, a guest into your home. And then there's the reason for the occasion. There's that time with Jesus. And I, I'll just put it like this. I think us Marthas get beat up pretty regularly for getting distracted by preparations and logistics and the mundane affairs of life, temporal concerns. And the thing that us Marthas have to do is we have to spend more time thinking about the spiritual reason. Why, why are we here? What is it that we're hoping to accomplish? Is Jesus here? And do I need to be more focused on him than I am on, you know, getting the right plate set out or whatever? All right. So that's, that's kind of the setup here. What I want you to see is that that's not the only thing the Bible says about this, about this balance thing here on this subject. I want you to go over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12. And this is the other end of the balance, the other end of the scale. And it's the mirror image of what we just read in Luke chapter 10. So here in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church. There's a problem here at this church, and I'm going to tell you about it in just a minute. But Paul says, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. So let me tell you what, what's happening here at, uh, at the Thessalonian church. There are some in the Thessalonian church, I don't know how many, who evidently become so spiritual, so focused on spiritual things, so focused on the second coming. They thought Jesus was just a few days away. That they thought, oh, well, let's, let's don't worry about going to work. Let's you know, just quit the job and we, we can live off the fat of land here until he shows up. But it's just a matter of a little while before he does. But they, they were very spiritually minded and uh, just could not be bothered with the minor detail of going to work and providing for themselves. As it turned out, this thing carried on much longer. In fact, he hadn't come back yet. Um, carried on much longer than what they anticipated. So they ended up mooching off everybody else in the church there. But they were so focused on spiritual things that they were not taking care of the most basic necessities of living in this world. And so that's what I'm saying. Second Thessalonians 3 is like the mirror image of Luke chapter 10. In, in both cases, you've got people who are all caught up in the details of, of life, the mundane affairs of life, and then you have this spiritual aspect, spiritual concern. And in, in the case in, in Luke chapter 10, Martha's getting all focused on these uh, material things, these worldly things, and she's not paying any attention to Jesus. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, these people are all focused on Jesus and his second coming, but they, don't, they can't be bothered with going to work and taking care of themselves. There's a balance that's supposed to happen with these things. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not one or the other. It's both at the same time. And you have to kind of keep your eye on both. It's hard to find the line in the middle there that's just exactly right. But if you keep your eye on both ends of the scale, you're going to be just about right. All right. Let's go for number three. There's a balance between God's sovereignty and our free will. And what we're talking about now is just the age-old question of how God can be sovereign over this world and over us and yet allow us to have a meaningful choice and free will. We all believe that God is in control. 
we know that uh, nothing's going to happen that God doesn't allow. We know that God's got a, a basic direction for this world. We know, I mean, the Bible tells us this, that God is the big guy, and he's got his, he, he, he's over it all. He's controlling it all. We, we don't have to worry because, because that's true. On the other hand, we're also told, taught in the Bible, that God has given us free will, that we're able to make decisions. And you kind of wonder, well, how do those two things get together? If we're able to make decisions, if, if God has given us free will, how is it that God's going to keep things headed in the direction that he wants it to go if we all have free will? Well, that's just one of those questions where it, it's kind of hard to find the line in the middle. But it's not either or, it's both and. You have to keep your eye on both of these at the same time to keep things headed in the right direction. So, just to give you a few verses, we had our scripture reading this morning. This is Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. And, and basically what it says, God's in control. Paul says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Basically saying, you know, uh, and to, and to a large extent, what we decide, what we're doing is irrelevant. God is the one who is controlling what's happening here. Go on to verse there, 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And so Paul goes back to the example of Pharaoh. And, of course, we know at some point Pharaoh was being used by God. God raised him up for this purpose, and God used him to accomplish something. And, and I think that for a while there, Pharaoh didn't have much choice about what was happening. It wasn't contrary to his nature. That was the kind of guy he was. But I don't think he really had the option of going the opposite direction, going any direction other than what God wanted. God was in control. So, you know, it, it's there in the Bible. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. That's verse, verse 18. Now, you know, those verses are hard for us because we're basically free will people. And we teach that and we believe that and, and we, we try, we don't get into that, uh, that stuff so much where we, we talk about God being in control. We, we don't know how to, how to resolve all this. So John three sixteen is a big verse for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, that means anybody can. Anybody can become a Christian. Anybody can be saved. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And we believe that. And yet, there are some verses uh, in the book of Acts, a conversion that happens in the book of Acts. I want to just point out something about it to you because I've read these verses and I've thought about them for a long time. But man, they make me think. They make me think a lot. It's the story of the conversion of Lydia in Luke chapter 16. Paul and Silas come into the, uh, I believe it's the city of Philippi is where, where they are. They come into Philippi. They, they look for the place of prayer. There's not enough Jews there to have a synagogue. So they're looking for a place of prayer because they know if there's any Jews there, they'll be there. And it's down by the river. It's a bunch of women who are showing up. One of them is Lydia. And so here's what happens. Paul meets, uh, meets up with these, uh, these ladies, and he kind of takes over their Bible study, their prayer meeting. And it says, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabric, a worshiper of God, was listening. Now catch this. 
And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And I've thought about that. Okay, well, we could talk about it. Well, maybe God just used That's an interesting way of talking about someone's, what's going on inside of them. The Lord opened her heart. Why didn't he open everybody's heart? But it says that he opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, Come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Actually, those words right there have changed the way I pray about people. I pray about people who are lost. I I pray for God to open their hearts. But let, let let me just say this. I do not think that what happened with Lydia here is uh, typical. I think basically it is our decision. It's whosoever will. But if there ever comes a time that God needs a convert, a place and a time that God needs someone to obey the gospel and to do something that has to be done, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. I think God's in control. And I think God needed a woman like Lydia to respond to the gospel on this occasion. And so things happened a little differently. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. What I'm saying, it's a big subject, and we're just kind of hitting this in passing this morning. Maybe we'll take time and do a lesson or two about this at some time later. But here's what I'm saying. Here's two ends of the spectrum, two ends of the balance. There's free will, and we believe we have it. And then there's God's control, his sovereignty, and we believe he has it. And, you know, we spend we spent most of our time looking at the free will end of this. But I think as Christians and students of the Bible, we might ought to kind of look over here more often and think about the other end of it. But the way you keep this thing working is you don't look at one or the other. You look at both at the same time. And you kind of keep them in balance. I think that's what God intends. May never be able to draw the line exactly in the middle where those two things meet. But God wants us to kind of keep both of those things in mind as we go along. So there's a balance that's needed here. We have to keep both ends of the scale in view. Here's number four. There is a balance between knowledge and love. And I want to say this, back a couple of weeks ago in our home groups, we, we, our first lesson was about grace and truth. And you remember the verse that we kind of keyed in on, it was John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in some ways, grace and truth are like two ends of the scale, two ends of the spectrum, and they have to kind of be balanced uh, one with the other. When I use the words knowledge and love, I'm, I'm actually talking about the same sort of idea, the same sort of thing, but I'm just using different terms, and this comes from a different place in the Bible. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And there's a contrast that's being drawn here between two things, knowledge and love. Knowledge is what we know, the facts, the truth, whatever, God's truth, God's revelation. And love is, you know, our concern for other people, our concern for their welfare. 
and all of that. And those things end up being, sometimes, need to be balanced one against the other. So let's read 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant. Or if you're reading out of RSV, it'll say knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. Love edifies. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by him. You said, you think you know what you need to know? You don't know enough. If you don't know about love, you're not practicing love. But here's the contrast. He said, you, you, you know and you love. He said, those two things, and they have to be balanced one against the other. So what's going on at Corinth here? Well, first of all, there, Corinth is basically a uh, Gentile congregation. There's a lot of converts in this congregation who, are, who came out of uh, pagan worship. They were used to worshiping idols. And one of the things that happened with the sacrifices that were made to those idols, it would be the meat, the excess meat would be carried down to the meat market and to be sold. And uh, people would buy it, and, uh, you know, it was, it was good. It was fresh and all that and good, good meat. But anyway, a lot of these converts from pagan worship, some of these converts had matured more than others. And some of the less mature believed that to eat the meat that had come off of one of these idols, that the altar of one of these idols, was basically the same thing as worshiping the idol. There were others who were more mature who believed and knew that eating that meat was no problem. They knew that the idols didn't really exist and that meat was just meat. And as a matter of fact, Paul does say in here in 1 Corinthians 8 in the next verses, he says, that's all. The idols don't even exist. The meat's just meat. We know that. That's, that's the knowledge that we have in this, in this thing right here. But he, he writes to the mature Christians and he says, you have knowledge. But others in your congregation don't have that knowledge. They don't have that understanding. Be careful here. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so... We're looking at two ends of the balance. You can be, there has to be a balance struck between love and knowledge. You can be 100% right on the facts, on the truth, on what you know. You can be 100% right, but you can be 100% wrong about how you use that knowledge and what you do with it. At the same time, if by your knowledge, and I'll put that in quotation marks, Someone else gets devastated. Someone else gets uh, smashed or crushed along the way. You're probably wrong. We have to let our knowledge be leavened with love. And we have to let our love be leavened with knowledge. They feed off of each other. They balance out each other. It's not an either-or situation. Paul argues for both. And a balance has to be struck. And if we're going to be right going to be right about right if we keep both knowledge and love in view at all times I uh, knew a fellow named Gordon Smith uh, up in the Detroit area he was one of the, he was a prominent preacher up there in that area when we first went up but during, while we were staying there he moved down to Gadsden Alabama he'd come back for meetings and things like that and um, there in Gadsden that area back in 1985 they had a tornado there that just tore that part of Alabama all to pieces and Gordon came back and he was telling a story about something that happened uh, there in that area among the churches down in that area there are uh, churches of Christ like us 
And then there are what's called uh, non-institutional churches. Some, some people call them antis. And they do not believe it's right to take money out of the treasury to buy anything for someone who is not a Christian. Is basically what it boils down to. That you, you might be able to do that for a Christian, although they might probably would be reluctant to do that. But um, certainly it would be wrong to take money out of the church treasury and give it to someone who was not a child of God. That would, in essence, that, that's kind of what they're saying. Well, Gordon was preaching, and he was just talking about a situation here I think kind of fits in with what I'm talking about. And he said, you know, we, we had the, the big tornado down there. Everything was torn up. And he said the, most of the churches down there, like ours, got busy and started helping people. And though if, it, if they collected money and they started giving it out as the church, there was no problem with that. But the non-institutional churches got on the radio and made a radio uh, announcement to be played. And the non-institutional churches announced to all other churches of Christ in the area that they would be held accountable in judgment if they used treasury money to help non-Christian people. Wanted to make sure that no one did anything they shouldn't, shouldn't do. And you might think that's a little bit extreme, but that I, I'm, I know Gordon, and I know he wouldn't make something up like that. Well, his point was this. He says, okay, he said, they know what they know. And he said, you know, even if they were 100% right on the doctrine, on the teaching, on the facts, on what they knew, which I don't believe they are, but he said, even if they were 100% right on that, they were 100% wrong on what they did with it. To get on the radio and to make that kind of an announcement among people who were sitting on the side of the road with nothing and tell churches, Christian people, that it can't help them because they're not members of their church or whatever. It was just crazy. And so he, the point he was making is even if they were right on the doctrine, which they weren't, they were absolutely wrong on the issue of love. There's knowledge and there's love. And those two things have to be kept in view at all times. Here's the last one. There needs to be a balance. There has to be a balance between prayer and doing. The Bible teaches us to pray, and I, I can hardly think of a situation where it would be wrong to pray. I mean, you're just asking God to get involved, and that can't be wrong. That's almost always good. And we're asking for his power and his wisdom and his guidance and his help and his blessing, all that. The Bible says pray without ceasing. That's First Thessalonians 5.17, and you know we look at that verse quite often. Jesus taught his disciples to keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. This is Matthew 7, 7 and 8. Jesus, you know, he teaches his disciples to pray. We're disciples. Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you'll find. Knock, it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. And so here, uh, Jesus is just saying, hey, prayer is important. Prayer, you need to pray. Because that's where, that's where you're going to get the things that, that you need. You need God's blessing, God's guidance. But here's, here's my point. There comes a time when we may have to quit praying and actually get up and do something. You hear what I'm saying? Now, uh, notwithstanding, pray without ceasing. That means you would have to get up prayerfully and go and do it prayerfully. But there may come a time when you quit praying and you actually get up and you go do something. There's a balance between asking God to help and to bless and to do and you being willing to go do something. 
those two things have to be kept in view at all times. So let me give you an example of, of how this works. At the end of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus makes a promise. He says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness. All these things shall be added unto you. And the things he's talking about are food and shelter and clothing and all that. He said, hey, don't worry about it. God's going to take care of it. Earlier on in chapter 6, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for their daily bread. Just Matthew six eleven, Give us this day our daily bread. He promises it at the end of chapter 6, but he says to pray for it. Chapter 6, verse 11. Same thing. And then, lo and behold, you find out there's something else that has to happen here if you're going to get your daily bread. It's not just a promise and not just something you pray for, but there's also something you've got to do. So we've, we've already read these verses, 2 Thessalonians 3, 10, and 11. Let's look at them again. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat. We don't care if he's praying or what. Or what God said, if he's not willing to work, he's not going to eat. But we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. I think that virtually every promise that God has made to us pretty much operates like that. There's the promise. He teaches us to pray for that promise, that he might keep that promise. And then he teaches us that we might have to get up and do something about that. They all three kind of work together. You understand what I'm saying? So, like I say, he promises these things. He tells us to pray for them. But many, many times there's a command, there's something that God is telling us to do in order to receive the thing that he promised and the thing that we're praying for. So think about this in the matter of salvation. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 21, Peter quotes Joel the prophet. And this is what Joel is talking about at the end of the prophecy that Peter is quoting is what's going to happen in the last days. We are living in the last days. That's the biblical term for the age in which we are living. We're living in the last days. And it says, it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And a lot of people look at that verse and say, well, that's about praying. That's about praying the sinner's prayer. Asking God to save me. Calling on his name. So there's a promise. And then they say, well, let's, let's pray for it. 17 verses later, the apostle, after Peter has quoted this verse, this prophecy... Peter tells these people there's something they have to do. It's not just a matter of prayer, if you, if you think that that verse was about prayer. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And to just draw this out a little bit further, when the Apostle Paul tells about his conversion, he does. He, it happens in chapter chapter 9, and he recounts it in 22 and 26 in the book of Acts, tells the story. But in chapter 22, he's telling the people in Jerusalem the story of his conversion. And he, um, as, as he goes through this, if you study those three places, what you're going to find out, on the way to Damascus, all, all this happened. He's carried, uh, carried into Damascus. He spends three days at the house of Judas, I think was his name, uh, on Straight Street. He is praying and he's fasting, calling on the name of the Lord. Ananias is sent by God to that house to tell Paul, Saul, what he needs to do. Ananias shows up. And what does Ananias find when he gets there? He finds a guy 
who is uh, full of repentance, full of sorrow and regret for all that he's done up to this point. I mean, this is a man who is calling on the name of the Lord. So what does Ananias tell him to do? Acts twenty-two sixteen. And now, why are you tarrying? Arise, get up, and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. There's the promise. There's the prayer. And sometimes you've got to get up and do something. You can only go so far with prayer. Sometimes you have to get up and do something. I'm, and this is where I want to end, okay? There's a balance between prayer and doing. There are some things where there's just nothing to be done. All you can do is pray. And so we do. But sometimes prayer only takes you so far, you have to get up and do what God has said to do to get the blessing that you're praying for. And it just occurred to me that maybe there's someone here this morning that's been thinking really seriously about becoming a Christian. And maybe you've been praying about that. And all I want to tell you, <laughs> if you're calling on the name of Jesus, if you're calling on God for your salvation, what are you waiting for? Get up. Be baptized. Wash away your sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. Maybe there's someone here this morning like I say, who wants to become a child of God. Today would be your day. What a great day for us if that were to happen. Let's stand and sing our hymn.